How we mark time is significant. It highlights what a particular culture or people values and separates or celebrates. For example, the season of Pentecost begins today in the church calendar. We're going to move forward and there will be a season of Pentecost where we celebrate what the Holy Spirit has done. Another example, on Wednesday, our culture embarked on their liturgical season of Pride Month. As many of you know, you know what that celebrates. But we as humans, we, we, we crave a unified story to celebrate together. We want to come together and say yes to something. The problem lies in what we will say yes to. What will we celebrate as a people? If we try to mark time by the accomplishments of man, what we can do, our calendars and our cultural practices will often shift and conform to that. At work, you will lose holidays like Good Friday to Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This actually happened to me. We no longer celebrate the death of Jesus and what he did. We celebrate the acts of Martin Luther King. And great acts though they may be, we've shifted, haven't we, in our culture to where we're celebrating what man has done and what we as a society have done rather than what God, our creator, has done in history. So in practice, you have to shop now with pride flags in your face if you want to go buy groceries. This is what happens as, as we shift and conform to the, the seasons and the accomplish, accomplishments of man. So the solution to this problem of divided calendars and practices and cultures lies in celebrating the acts of God rather than the acts of man. It actually brings a solution to this problem. Now, I'm not here to, today to preach to you to the church calendar, but I am here to preach to you the significance of what the global church, the, the, the Catholic church with the lower KC, Christians all over the world are going to be celebrating today. We're entering a new season of the church, and we're going to look at that today, what that means to celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Now, Pentecost is perhaps the uh, most misunderstood biblical event in Protestant circles, and maybe just all the church. We, we rarely understand what Pentecost actually means. It's either an altogether ignored, which is happen, happens in many Protestant churches, we just don't talk about the Pentecostal stuff, or it's oddly misapplied. We don't really understand, and we take it into all these weird conclusions. So today I'd like to share with you the significance of what happened at Pentecost from the biblical narrative and how we should respond to it. What does Pentecost mean, and what what do we do about it? So if you would open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read the entirety of this chapter. I know it's long, but please bear with me. I want to get the whole picture of what Pentecost means. So the text is Acts chapter 2. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, 
Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mockingly said, They are filled with new wine. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants in those days i will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and i will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the lord comes the great and magnificent day And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, it, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. I need your help as we approach such a huge subject, such a huge text. I pray that you would guide my words. I pray that the meditations of my heart and my the words of my mouth would be, be pleasing to you. I pray that you would work conviction and repentance in our hearts through this text. I pray that we would see Jesus clearly. The centerpiece of Peter's sermon, I pray it would be the same centerpiece of my sermon, that people would see Jesus and what he's done, repent of their sins, turn to you, be baptized, worship you, and move forward in life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if that text seemed extremely long to you, which it was, just think of it this way. Technically, you've already got one sermon out of the way. You just heard Peter's sermon. He stated his text. His text was Joel 2, and you heard that sermon on Joel, and even quoted some of the Psalms too. So you've actually already gotten one sermon for the day. But it says in the in the text there that um, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So he, he had more of his sermon that you didn't hear. And what I'm going to kind of try to do is fill in some of that gap for you and kind of bounce off of Peter's sermon and help you to understand better what Pentecost means, how we relate Pentecost in 2022 to our present moment because it still has significance today as it did in Peter's day. So, but before we can do that, we need to get a little bit of context to understand what's going on in Peter's day. What is Peter uh, speaking and what what is the the cultural view at that time? Now, first notice in verse 5 that the miracle of Pentecost was to the Jews first and foremost. It was devout Jews gathering in Jerusalem. They're coming from all the different nations and coming into one central place, namely the temple, to worship at Pentecost. And because they were Jewish, they had a common understanding of the people of God and how God had acted in time and space. So their history was the same. They, they were one people, even though were, they were scattered about. And they were coming to celebrate this one thing together. They would have understood what Pentecost meant at this time. It would have had a little bit of a different meaning for them because we're Christians. We have a little bit of a spin on it because we get to see what Acts 2 said. But before Acts 2, there was a little bit of a different view. So we as Gentiles, on the other hand, we forget that we've been grafted into that bigger story, don't we? That's the way that the scriptures speak, that we as Gentiles, we get grafted into this big history. that We, we often think that that little grafting point is where everything began, but it's not. We go deeper. We have deep roots that go all the way down to the beginning of time. We get, we get to claim the Old Testament as ours, as Gentiles. So we don't, we don't think that Acts 2 is where everything started. We have to realize that it goes deeper than that. And we've lost the whole reason why these Jews were gathering in, at Pentecost in the first place. right? We, we probably, many of you may not even know why are they even there. Because you think Acts 2 means uh, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit since. But it doesn't to them. So Pentecost in that, their day was another name for the Feast of Weeks, which God ordained in Leviticus, 20, yeah, Leviticus 23. If you were to go back there, you would see that he ordained this feast, and it was called the Feast of Weeks. So this holiday, uh, commanded to, it was commanded to be celebrated 50 days after the seventh Sabbath day. So in Peter's day, this would have been 50 days after the Sabbath that Jesus was crucified on. 
Think about that. So 40 days after the resurrection, they're celebrating that. And then today, in our context, this is 49 days since it's been Easter, right? So we're, we're celebrating Pentecost now here following that same pattern. And back then, over time, the Feast of Weeks, it became uh, known to, to commemorate also the giving of the law at Mount Sinai 50 days after the Exodus event. So the, this numerology in Scripture, it can get complicated, but it bounces around a lot. But it, it grew over time to say not only does it uh, follow this Leviticus 23 pattern of the Feast of Weeks, but it also commemorates the 50 days from the time that we were delivered in uh, Egypt to the time that Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai. Right, So it's kind of growing in its meaning. So the meaning that it's taken on from a Christian perspective, we'll discuss in a moment. But now you can get a little bit of a better picture of what a Jew would have been thinking as they gathered on this holiday. Um, it was ordained by God, but they've also, through tradition, celebrated what Moses done and how he gave the law and how they were instituted, uh, the law to, to be a nation, to be a people. So this is what they're thinking when they come together at Pentecost. And now, with that in view, we can start to move forward and see what it means for us. Now, this text, I'll just be really honest with you, it's very easy to preach because the two most important questions have already been answered and asked. In verse 12, the people ask, what does this mean? Right? Very simple. The, the other question that's asked and answered is verse 37, what shall we do? So what does Pentecost mean? What shall we do? I'm just going to bounce off of Peter's sermon and look at what he said, and that should give you a better picture of what Pentecost means and what we should do about it. So let's first look at the meaning. What does the miracle of Pentecost mean? Well, Peter answers this question for the onlookers, but since we're not Jews as they were, we're likely to miss some of the themes that they would have just taken for granted, right? We said that there are people that are unified. They know what they're worshiping, and they're just coming there thinking that it's just going to be a normal Pentecost uh, uh, Sabbath for them to come and worship together. So, but first, notice what he says is chiefly the meaning of this miracle. This event is the fulfillment of Scripture, Number one, it's the fulfillment of Scripture. If you look at verse 16, it says this. After Pentecost happened, after that, the Holy Spirit came and the tongues of fire and the, the, the languages happened. Peter says this. But this, referring to that event of Pentecost, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he brings out his Bible. He says, what you're seeing here is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. It's unfolding before your eyes. And then he, uh, he cites Joel 2, 28-32. Now, what's significant about this is th those first words in verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be. And in the last days, it shall be. Peter just said, this is what you're seeing. In other words, he's saying this is uh, the last days that the, the prophets looked forward to. So what we can see is this is a, here's a big word, eschatological event. I've said this quite a few times. I, you guys might even know the meaning now. Eschatos means last things. That's the study of last things. So what he's saying here is an eschatological event. right? It's, it's showing what is happening in the last days. But when we hear last days, when we hear end times, and we, hear, we, we throw these words around in Christian circles, don't we? Last days, end times, and you talk about the events and you say the last days are here. But we, we talk about it and we start thinking the end of mankind, don't we? Like the absolute end of history, when all people come to this stopping point. But last days, according to Peter, are being fulfilled here at Pentecost, aren't they? He says this is what was uttered. It's happening right now before your eyes. So what we need to do at this point is start asking and start thinking, last days of what? Last days of what? Now, as many of you know, the age or the time of Israel as a nation where God was dwelling was coming to a close in the New Testament. 
Right? You can see that God kind of shifts from uh, being active in the Jewish people to Christianity. God was doing a new thing in Christ, and the people were gathering around Jesus. And Isaiah 43 talks about this new thing. It says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So what is this new thing? What's the new thing that's kind of springing up from the wilderness? Well, this leads us to Peter's sermon. His text was Joel 2:28 through 32 And now he's going to tell us what that text about the last days means. Now, what he's going to say is not only is this a fulfillment of, of prophecy, but he's saying that this is a fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus. So what does it mean? It's fulfillment of prophecy, and it's a fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus. Jesus and him pouring out the Spirit fulfills what the the prophecy in Joel was looking forward to. In verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he goes on to tell them how Jesus is fulfilling this event. So what we need to catch here is that Peter's message is all about what God has done in Christ. Jesus is the centerpiece of Peter's sermon. The new thing spoken of by the prophet Isaiah is that God took on human flesh to dwell among us. And this Jesus, whom the Jews had just recently crucified, it wasn't that long ago, about 50 days, he wasn't an ordinary man. Many of the Jews probably thought, well, without Jesus, he was dead and gone. But, but Peter has a different message. He says, no, this, this, this man, he is God incarnate, and he is the king. He is actually the king that God had promised to David that would come from the fruit of his loins to sit on his throne, and you killed him. So it's, it's, jatter, it's shattering to them. It's, it's jarring to them. Now, if you remember in the chapter before this, in Acts 1, you can turn there if you want, maybe just a, a page flip back. The disciples were on to Jesus right before his ascension, feeling that it might be the last days. He, they say this in Acts 1, 6, if you turn back um, to chapter 1, it says, So when they'd come together right before his ascension, that is, they asked him, Lord, will you this, at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus is just about to ascend into heaven and they say, is now the time? Or is the kingdom about to come? Now, the Jews, they weren't ignorant of the last days. They're always looking forward to this. All through the Old Testament. They're, Where are the last days? Are they now? Or is now the time that you're going to restore? So they knew a descendant of David would come and sit on a throne, ruling and reigning. They're looking forward to that. They had the right idea when they were thinking of restoration. So they're not far off. The problem that they had was that they were thinking of an old thing. They weren't thinking of a new thing. They were thinking of the nation of Israel being restored to one standalone nation where the Messiah would uh, reside in the temple, that he would physically sit there and rule and reign, and that Israel would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what they were thinking. And that it would be this physical king that they could come and stand before and talk to him like we talk. But that's not exactly what Jesus had in mind. Jesus responded to them by saying that it's not for them to know the times of the seasons. You've heard this over and over through Scripture. That's the way Jesus usually approaches that. When he's uh, talking to Pharisees in Luke 17, he says this, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. Now, what he's saying is you're not going to be able to spot it. You're not going to be able to predict it. And then he goes on to say, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Think about that. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You can't point to it and say, here it is, or here that, here it is. He, he's saying, it's in you. 
It's already here. It's in our midst. And it's something you can't even quite put your finger on. So after telling his disciples this, when they asked that question in Acts 1.8, he says this, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Now, let's look back at verse 30 through 36 and just kind of take the context of what Jesus is saying here. Verse 30 through 36, I won't read all that because we've already read a bunch this morning, but it's, it's clear, if you, if you look at that and just kind of scan over, it's clear that Peter's pointing to the kingship of Jesus. Right? We're talking about the kingdom of God being in our midst. It's, it's clear that Peter's pointing to the kingship of Jesus, speaking of Christ, sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And we at this point need to realize that the onlookers, as the, as the onlookers quickly did, that the kingdom of heaven was not some future event. This is what you need to get. Pentecost is the actual happening of the kingdom of God coming. It was here and unfolding before their eyes, and that's why they're shocked. That's why they're cut to the heart. Acts 2.33 says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, He, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing. In other words, Jesus the King has come and he's pouring out the Holy Spirit to bring his kingdom about, ruling and reigning, putting all enemies under his feet. It's not the kingdom that they had imagined. When we think about a king, we think about someone sitting on a throne and him being just a powerful person and you can physically walk up to him. But the, 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 the mind-shattering thing was is that this, this God, this man has ascended into heaven and he's ruling and reigning from there, but he's still powerful. He's still working, and his kingdom is still in our midst, and it's the coming of the Holy Spirit that it is that is his reign. That power is kind of like his, his powerful rule that a king has. Now, a king isn't strong and powerful because he's physically strong and powerful, is he? It's not because he has big guns. It's because he has a lot of um, influence on the people. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit as king to empower his people to reign with him in his kingdom, to bring about his rule in the world. So the coming of the Holy Spirit was given by Jesus himself as king to bring about this new culture, to bring about this new world. So taking all these points together that I made, let's, let's return and ask again, what does the miracle of Pentecost mean? Well, we can see that Jesus was pouring out the Spirit on his people, but what significance does this have? What does it mean that Jesus is pouring it out and what the, that he has rain? What does that mean? Well, remember at that time, the Feast of Pentecost was largely a celebration of God giving the law 50 days after the Passover event and the great exodus from slavery, where God instituted the nation of Israel, right, with Moses. Now, think about where we're at in this context in Acts 2. Here we see the 12 apostles, like the 12 tribes of Israel, following this Moses-like figure, Jesus, who institutes a Passover-like meal, the Lord's Supper, then leads his people out of slavery, not to Egypt, but the sins of the world, the slavery of the sins of the world. And then he ascends into Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, the heavenly Jerusalem, sitting at the right hand of God. But he does not leave his people waiting at the foot of the mountain long. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit 50 days after the great exodus-like event. At his resurrection, he descends from Mount Zion, again, not Mount Sinai, like Moses, not to hand them two tablets of stone, but to write the law on their hearts. Right? 
Not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. You've heard this all through the scriptures. But think about it like that. Jesus coming in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give the law, the order of this new nation. This new people. This holy people set apart to internalize the law so that we can actually obey. Because just giving two tablets of stone doesn't actually make them obey, does it? Israel, they wandered all over the place. But here comes Jesus. Picture not Moses, but Jesus going up into the heavenly mountain and then coming back down with not two tablets of stone for his people, but this Pentecostal event. What they're seeing right there. That's Jesus coming and establishing this new people, his reign, his rule as king. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, it says. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them like what? Kind of like a glory cloud. Remember the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory that led the people of Israel around? What was going to be their guide? Well, now they have this fire individually on them. Not one central place, but they all have this Holy Spirit, this glory cloud right resting on them. To what? To fill their temple. Because they are the temple of God. They are the people of God moving forward. And each one received this spirit, hosting it as a personal embodied temple. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And all the people heard that gospel witness of the mighty acts of God in their own tongue. Now think about what was happening there. This, this event where all these people are talking with what would sound like gibberish to, to people that were onlookers that were the, the wicked generation. But others said, no, the, actually, that makes sense. I heard that in my own language, and they're not the same ethnicity as me. They're actually – something's happening here. So as, as a great reversal of the Babel event, these diverse nations suddenly become hearing the mighty works of God in their own tongue. God's flipped over what happened in Babel. Do you remember what the Babel story was about? All these, these people gathered around to build this culture. They said, we're going to build a city. It's going to be awesome. We'll make it all the way up into God and we'll ascend up into the heavens. And God says, there's no way they can do that. They're not powerful. No, that's actually not what he says. He says, if I don't do anything, these people will, they, there's nothing that will be impossible to them. So what does he do? He scatters them by breaking their language. You can't unify anymore with your speech, your powerful words, your ideologies, your thinking, the way that you construct a society. Jesus says, done. Away with it. And then here at this event in Pentecost, it's reversed, but in the kingdom of God. How are they going to build a new culture? Like this, where the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus comes as king to rule in this new city, this new creation. And he's unraveling this chaotic uh, world, bringing shape and form to it, just like the Holy Spirit did at the beginning of creation, where the world was formless and without shape. The Holy Spirit came and brought shape, and the world was void, and now he's uniting all these people, this kingdom, again, under the good news of the gospel, the mighty acts of God. So what is it that reunifies the people of God? It's the gospel. It's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, what God has done, not man, what God has done in Christ. That is what reinstitutes this new kingdom. And what we quickly realize is that Pentecost marks not just the rebirth of the church, right? We think about the church being born, but it's the whole world because it starts as a mustard seed and it grows out all into the world, right? It starts small and it gets bigger and bigger. So the same thing that we've been studying in John, how this themes, these themes of new creation, it's all over scripture. It's not just John. Luke writes about it too, right? So what we realize is that Jesus is the true and better Israel, his life perfectly embodies the story of Israel, and when he died and resurrected, so did the Israel of God. 
right? So we are united in Jesus as the perfect people, the holy people. Likewise, he's the new man, the new Adam. We're not basing our, our, our lives and our rules and our laws off of what Adam did. We're basing it off of what Christ has done as the new Adam who is taking dominion of the world and being fruitful and multiplying through the kingdom of God, through the new Eden, the church. That's us, and he's using us as ministers of the new kingdom. So we have, we've answered now the question, what does this mean? It's got huge meaning. I could talk about it all day, but let's move now to what shall we do? You hear this good news of the kingdom of God, the, the new Eden, the new church. It's here. It's now. What do we do now? How do we move forward? Well, I hope that our response is the same as the, onlooker, the onlookers in Peter's day. This is that they were cut to the heart. This news was big to them. Not only is it good news, but the, the, they just realized that this Jesus, that actually killed this guy. So they're wondering, oh, no. Am I in trouble? Is the king now against me? If this is the king, if this is the guy, and we just killed him, is there any hope for me? All right? So he preached, preached this sermon. I think it just like snapped in their minds like, oh, shoot. We, the last days are here. Eschatology, what I thought it was, just got blown up. Jesus is the king. Is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And Peter says, it's simple. Just repent. Just repent. And they're probably thinking, that's it? Just repent? He says, be baptized. Join the kingdom. And yes, your sins will be forgiven. And you'll be given the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. They found themselves on the wrong side of the war, and yet Peter says, well, all you got to do to join the, the right side is to repent. Just come on, come on over here. It's very, very simple. So Peter then exhorts them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and they too will receive the Holy Spirit. And this was a kind of call to leave behind that crooked and twisted generation. They were complicit in the murder of Jesus. So what Peter is saying by but repent is you've got to stop doing the old things that you were doing. You've got to stop building this old lifestyle, this Babylonian lifestyle that's building this city of man, not the city of God. We've got to start building something else, an alternative culture. So the repentance was realizing that following the institutions rather than the truth can lead to devastating consequences. Now think about that for your own life. What ways have you followed the institutions rather than the truth itself and allowed the institution and the ideologies to shape what you do and how you live? And what ways have you sinned against God by doing that? Even crucifying the Lord is what they did. They, they, they took it that far. So think about how you act during the month of June. Right, The practices that our culture is participating in. How do you live in light of that? Is Pride Month easier for you to celebrate than Pentecost? Now, to some of you, you would say, no, 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 not at all. Some of you are just turning your head and looking away from the abominations. But many of the Jews did this too at the trial of Jesus, didn't they? They just kind of looked away. They didn't do anything about it. They just said, no, that's what the will of the people want. Right? That's, that's just what the group wants. Do you wash your hands like Pilate and say, it's the will of the people, no blood on my hands? Our nation decided this. I didn't decide it, but our nation did, so we just kind of go along with it. It is what it is. Democracy, right? It's the will of the people. But democracy killed Jesus. That's literally what killed Jesus, the will of the people. It, 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 all it would have taken was someone to just stand up, but no one did. No one did. So when it comes to our nation and how we live, there's real implications for how time and values and truth shapes who we are. That gospel message, who Jesus is, what he's about. If we as the church are going to move forward with the kingdom of God, we need to make sure that we aren't getting in the way like many of the Jews did in Peter's day. 
The message is clear. Jesus has created a new city of God where he is king with a kingdom of priests, and it's a holy nation, a nation truly under God. Think about that. We confess to be a nation truly under God, and yet there's so many things that just don't even make sense with that. How can you be a nation under God while you're doing things that God hates? And in response to that, we must humble ourselves and repent. Say, I'm sorry. I have been complicit in many ways. I've, I've participated sometimes. Thankfully, graciously, God has invited us all, everyone, to repent and call on his name. Anyone. There's a chance. Even if this week you participated in those kind of events, come, Jesus says. Repent of your sins. Come join the holy nation, the holy priesthood. And in this heavenly kingdom, God invites us into the living waters of baptism, where he administers on us the promised Holy Spirit to do what? To guide us. To help us to know how to navigate and live in this world. To give us a law that's internalized where we're not constantly looking up at the law to see, does this abide with the code? It's no. You'll have a heart that knows what to do. You'll have an intuition that actually helps you make right decisions to live rightly with your brothers and sisters. So church, as we close, I'd like to bring this back to where we began. We've sadly allowed the forces of our culture to rule and shape our lives. There are churches flying rainbow flags this week. There's sermons being preached about pride and homosexuality this week. As I drove through Evansville, there were churches that said that this Sunday we're going to be celebrating Pride Sunday. And the reality is is that Scripture clearly says that the homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are we talking about here? Jesus establishing this new kingdom, moving forward with the new kingdom of God where righteousness will reign and where Jesus is going to be putting all enemies under his feet. Who are the enemies? Now, it can sound very quickly like I'm saying, well, it's the homosexuals. They're the enemies. And that's not what I'm saying. We just confessed a minute ago in Joel that, that God loves the sinners. He's calling us to repent. And we've confessed that if we say that we hate our brother, right? If we hate our brother, that the love of God is not in us. So we need to learn how to navigate, don't we? We need to learn how to live as the kingdom of God to be able to welcome these people and say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. But if you come, you must repent. You must come on God's terms. So today I'd like to lock arms with Peter and celebrate the true meaning of Pentecost. When our nation that was once under God, and uh, that once was under God's blessing as well, is now crucifying Christ once again, we should repent and we should call all others to repent as well. And just like the Jews were on the right track at the beginning, so was our nation, wasn't it? We actually had a lot of things that were going right, and we've slipped. We've allowed things to say, we've allowed the, the ideologies and these ways of thinking, the diverse tongues, you might think of it like that, to shape how we live. We've sinned and we've moved far from the blessing of God. So how do we re- respond? How do we get back? How do we rebuild and go back to the blessing of God? Well, Peter says, repent. Repent and be baptized. What else? Well, we repent, we we be baptized, and many of you say, well, I've already been baptized. What do I do now? Do I just sit down? No. Well, you're given the Holy Spirit, that promise to actually empower you to move forward. And it's not just for you to move forward. It's for your children. You're thinking about how do we rebuild? How do we get our nation back? How do, we, how do we get our society, our culture in the right direction? It's going to take work, and you're going to need your kids to come along the way. And you're going to actually need to call on anyone who's going to be willing, because that's how we're going to get back. Verse 38 says what? 
This says, be baptized for the promises for you and your children. In other words, be baptized, baptize your babies, and the covenantal promise will follow. You're going to actually be able to move forward. And by this Holy Spirit, you're going to be given the ability to obey, to rebuild, and to restore all the brokenness that your sin has allowed in our country, in our our cities, wherever your culture is. Look around at the ruins. Look around at the mess that we live in, and then repent. Be forgiven, because Jesus says you will be forgiven. That's what Peter says. And then rebuild. Start to rebuild with your children alongside, and anyone else who's willing to come and help. That's how we move forward. And look at their actual response. What are they actually doing? You're going to say, well, practically, what does that mean? What do I do? Well, look what they're doing in verse uh, 42 through uh, 47. It says that they're building an alternative culture by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're doing things like small groups saying, what do the apostles say about this? What's, What's church teaching say about this? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, feasting together in homes. Small groups probably think something like that. Praying together, prayer groups, prayer meetings. They're being generous and taking care of each other's needs. They're uh, getting involved in their community, taking care of the, the widows, the sick. Good religion, like James says. They're praising God and having favor with all people. Church, that sounds like what I want. I think that many of you want that as well. We want to move forward, building an alternative, better culture to be building the kingdom of God. So let me finish with this. I'd like to read a passage. It's another prophecy. I know you're probably thinking, wow, we've already heard a lot of prophecy this morning. But I think it really speaks to this issue of how do we rebuild and what does it look like for God to rebuild within the people of God. And I'm going to let the, the, the Spirit himself who has empowered each and every one of you that have trusted in him and believed in him to apply that in the, the ways that he sees fit. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but just listen to what the uh, what God says through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 36 says this, and then I'll close. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, which to which you came. And I will vindicate my holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take from you, or take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Think baptism. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all uncleanliness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. And you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves and your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed. And confounded of your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, it will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places to be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being a desolation. 
in it, in it as it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this is the land that was desolate, has become like the, dark, the garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Let's pray. Lord, to be the kingdom of God, to be uh, a kingdom of priests, a holy people, a people for your own possession. Teach us what that means. Give us the Pentecostal power that we need to navigate this world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're now going to...